with that, let's go ahead and, and get into our series. We're continuing in this series that we've entitled Distinct. And what we're doing in this series is that we're investigating what it is that makes Christianity distinct from other religions in, in the world. There is a growing universalist mindset, worldview, that says that all religions are really kind of the same thing, that they all point to the same ultimate reality, that all religions lead to the same heaven, whatever that may be, that all religions are just really the same thing. And so you see this mindset growing in our culture. What these folks literally would say is that you can take anyone of any religion, all of them, put them in one big room and hold a worship service, and it's all good. Well, what we're doing in this series is that we're, we're challenging that. We're investigating. We're testing to see whether that is true or not. Are they all the same? Or is there a distinction between the faith? Is there a distinction between Christianity and all these other groups? So by way of very quick review, in week one of the series, we looked at the topic of God. And we saw that the Bible makes a very distinct case for a very distinct God, that he is very distinct from the God of other faiths. In week two, we looked at the topic of humanity, mankind, people, us, who are we? Like, and we saw that the Bible offers very distinct answers to these questions that most of us have. And if you have children, you've heard these questions. Where do we come from? What is our purpose? Why are we here? Where are we going? And the Bible offers very distinct answers that are different than what other religions teach. In week three, we looked at the topic of champions. Every religion has a champion. Every religion has a hero. And in Christianity, our champion is the one and only Jesus, the sole living God, God the, Father, God, God the Son, you know, the Son of God, the one and only who came and died for us on the cross. That's our champion. And then last week, we looked at the topic of messages. Every religion has a message that they put forth out there. And what makes the Christian message unique and distinct from all other messages spouted by every other religion is that the Christian message is a message of grace. That we can be forgiven of our sin, that we can be saved, so we can be prepared for heaven, set aside for heaven, have a place in heaven for all eternity, not because of what we do, not by our works, not by our effort, not by any of that, but simply because God loves us by his mercy, his kindness, by the grace of God. And, and I invite you all that if you're here for the first time or if you've missed any of the last few weeks, you can go to our website, so anthem-church.org, and you can catch up there and listen to, to the sermons and, and just do, or you can do a little reviewing there. So when you go to our website, you just click on the resources tab and it drops down and you click on messages and you go there and you can listen away. Or you, if you have iTunes, you can go to iTunes. You just have to search for Anthem Church dash sermon audio. Anthem Church dash sermon audio. And you can download on, you can subscribe to it and just have it there as well. So Anyway, that's as much review as I'm going to do. Today, we are looking at the topic of writings. Writings. Every movement, every great movement, big movement, major movement in the world has been associated with some writing or writings of some sort. So think about the movement that we call the United States of America. America, right? Declaration of Independence. 
Bill of Rights, the Constitution, and other writings. Look on the other side of the spectrum. Communism, what we consider to be modern-day communism today, it was a relatively small political pamphlet printed in Germany in the 1800s, the Communist Manifesto, that gave rise ultimately to Leninism and Stalin and what we consider the Soviet Union and what we see today in Cuba and what we see in China and other places. It was this writing that came forth. Uh, today, there is this other incredible heretical movement moving throughout the planet. I think it's already made its way around. Where you have, because of the writings of one person, Stephanie Myers, the writings of one person, millions upon millions of teenage girls pining after vampires that sparkle and shimmer. When we know that's not true, because as soon as a vampire hits the sun, they explode. So we know that's true. But to you... <laughs> And just for the record, there's no such thing as vampires. I hope. It's <laughs> but you see that, that there are writings that are associated with all the great movements. It's the same thing in, in religions. All major religions have writings that are associated. They, they would consider it sacred writings. Uh, all the religions would call their, their holy scriptures. And these unique texts are what are the basis for their beliefs. They're the foundation of their faith. It's these, these texts, these writings, these holy scriptures that, that give them their, their unique personality. Every, every religion has this culture, right? It's what gives us its own flavor. Every, the writings are what do that. It provides answers to these great questions that we all have, and it, it provides the guidelines for how to live. That's what these writings do within their religions. And I could argue, and I will argue because I like to argue, I will argue that it is the writings of every religion that ultimately are the most important thing within that religion. Because every religion claims that its sacred writings are divine revelation. Every religion that has these sacred texts says that God, however it is that they define God to be, has spoken, has revealed, has communicated stuff that we need to know, truth about life now, facts and information about the life to come. Like everything comes out of this document or documents and every religion claims that God, in some form or fashion, is the one who's divinely disclosed it and revealed it. So ultimately, it really is the most important thing for that religion. And so in Christianity, our sacred scriptures are what? The Bible. The Bible. And so what I'd like to do this morning is to just show how the Bible is distinct from other religious writings. How the Bible is distinct, and I'm going to introduce you all, if you're, if you're not familiar with the topic, I'm going to introduce you to the sacred writings of a few other religions. I'm going to give you some fun facts about the, the religions there and their sacred texts, and then I, as quickly as I can, I'm going to turn to talk about the Bible and what makes the Bible unique and distinct and special, and there's nothing like it, what that I'm going to try by God's grace and, and by his spirit to convict you in your own heart, and your own mind, that the Bible is, in fact, God's distinct revelation of himself to us for our good and for his, for his glory. So let's just kind of begin. Let's walk down a few different religions here. 
And I don't mean to put on my professor hat, but this series kind of feels that way. So I, I probably should be wearing a tweed jacket with the elbow patches and a bow tie and, and have a pipe. That would be kind of cool. Maybe next week. So we'll see. So let's begin with a religion that everyone is extremely familiar with. I feel silly bringing it up. Zoroastrianism. All right. So everyone um, that believes in Zoroastrianism, they believe that God revealed truth to one prophet, one specific individual prophet. His name was Zarathustra, and Zarathustra lived somewhere between 1200 and 600 BC. There's like no consensus as to when. I mean, that's a pretty wide range, right? There's no consensus when he lived, but anyway, God revealed everything to this one individual prophet, and it's everything that was revealed to him is contained in these 17 hymns that are called the Gathas. And so the Gathas, these 17 hymns compiled by this one single prophet sometime in the past, uh, the, those Gathas are not like the central part of their worship, the central part of their beliefs and their, their religion. To move on to a religion we're maybe a little bit more familiar with, Islam. So the central religious text in the religion of Islam is the Quran, the Quran. And so Muslims believe that the Quran was verbally revealed by God to one prophet, Muhammad, by a specific angel, the angel Gabriel. And that this took place over a 23-year period, mostly in this one cave. Um, and then after Muhammad died in 632 A.D., his companions said, hey, we should write down what he said. And so the people wrote down the Quran. Quran literally means recitation. So the people were reciting what Muhammad said, and they wrote it down. And that's what gave rise to the book of uh, the Quran. And everything that a Muslim believes arises only from the Quran. It is completely authoritative in every way for, for them. And what is really interesting is that for the Muslim, the Quran is not the Quran unless it's in Arabic. Because God, they say that God literally, physically spoke it in Arabic, that any translation of the Quran into any other language is not God's word, it's not God's revelation, it doesn't count. It doesn't, it doesn't count. Uh, another fun fact is that the Quran, Quran actually includes stories about Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and Jonah and Jesus, and Mary, mother of Jesus, John the Baptist. John the Baptist is in the Quran, folks. And <laughs> it what's really interesting, though, is that if you were to compare the stories, the stories aren't the same. They don't match. And so what the, the Muslim says is that anywhere there is a difference, a discrepancy, they believe that the Quran is what corrects it. So they, to them, the Jew and the Christian has corrupted God's word, and so the Quran smooths it out, takes away the errors. It, it takes away these corruptions that you see in what we would call the Old Testament or the New Testament. All right, moving on to another religion. I know I feel silly because you guys know this, right? Like the, the Sikhism. You're familiar with Sikhism? Uh, it actually is considered one of the world's main top top 10 religions because there are about 28 to 30 million people that adhere to the Sikh religion you know 
someone is a Sikh, particular man, it, because they have a very distinct uh, head attire that they wear, a turban. It's called a dastra. They wear this, and so you, you can spot a Sikh pretty easily because of that. And it's a, it's a religion that came out of northwest India, Pakistan, that area of the world. Um, their principal scripture is called the Adi Granth, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right. The Adi Granth. This is the way this goes. The Adi Granth was compiled by the fifth guru, Guru Arjan, in 1604. And so in the Sikh religion, they say that a guru, and it's like basically to them, it's, it's equivalent to um, the Pope in Catholicism. That's what the guru is, okay? So the guru is the voice of God. The first guru, Guru Nanak, Guru Nanak, he lived from 1469 to 1539. And the way the story goes is that he was initially born into a Hindu family. And around the year, when he was 30 years old, him and his friends went down to the river, down by the river, to, to bathe. And so he plunged himself in the water, and he was mysteriously hidden from everyone for three days. And everyone just thought he'd drowned. So, but then after three days, he reappeared, he, re he manifested himself, and he said this very specifically when he came up, there is no Hindu, there is no Muslim, and with those words, a brand new religion was born, the, the Sikh religion. And so what happened is that at first guru, the second, the third, the fourth, into the fifth, because they're the voice of God, the fifth guru said, you know what, let me write all this down. So he wrote down what had been passed on for about 100 years, including what he said, and that became the Adi Granth, their, their sacred book. Uh, what about Mormonism? So Mormons, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they believe in the Bible. They believe in what we would call the Old Testament, the New Testament. But they have something that they call another testament, and it's what they call the Book of of Mormon, and, and they'll, in essence, they'll hesitate. And, and I say this because I, I, in seminary, just so that you know, I did a tremendous amount of work on the Mormon religion. I'm particularly um, well-versed, I would say, specifically in that religion. Uh, I have had days of conversations with Mormons. So I, I'm, I'm speaking from very first-hand uh, investigation, research, and so forth. So a Mormon will never really tell you that the Bible is less or that the Book of Mormon is more, but in practice it is, okay? That, that if ever there's an issue, they will go to the Book of Mormon ahead of the Bible. The Bible is kind of a secondary, a secondary book. And what they teach is that the Book of Mormon contains stories of ancient prophets that live between 2200 B.C. and 421 B.C. And these stories were recorded in this ancient unknown language a very very much like egyptian hieroglyphics in essence and engraved upon these golden plates and then these plates were buried in a hill in new york and these prophets what they say is that these prophets lived in the american continent so whereas we think of the old testament obviously middle east that kind of thing new testament europe that right? They're saying that this other testament took place during the same time, but just here. And so you had these prophets, everything was engraved in this different language, golden plates, buried in a hill. So in 1823, an angel named Moroni appears to a 17-year-old guy in New York and says, there are these golden plates. Let me show you where they're buried. And so he 
taken to where they're buried, and, and it's like Wayne County, New York today, and he uncovers it, and it's his job to translate what's engraved on these golden plates. No one else can look at the plates. No one else has the ability to transcribe it or to uh, translate it. Uh, the way it usually worked is that he would put his head under a blanket with these plates because no one else could look at the plates, and then he would um, translate it verbally, and a scribe would write down what he was saying. And then in 19, I'm sorry, 1830, the first edition of the Book of Mormon came out. So, and, and my point for just bringing those up is that every religion has sacred texts. Hindus have sacred texts. Buddhists have Hindu texts. We could go on and on, but I mean, I just want to just show you that pretty much every major religion, and that's actually a distinction. There are religions that don't have sacred texts, but for it to be considered a major religion in the world, it has to have a sacred text. So the major religions on the planet have these sacred texts, and they all claim that it came from God. Every one of them claims the same thing. Well, what about the Bible? What about Christianity? Is the Bible different? Is it the same? Is it just another text that was from God? Or is it unique and distinct from the other religions in its uniqueness? And I, I want to share eight things as fast as I can that I believe show that the Bible is unique, special, distinct in all the world that it stands on a whole different plane, a whole different conversation than it does these other religious writings of these other, other faiths. So number one, the Bible was written over the course of 1,500 years. The Bible was written over the course of about 1,500-year period. Hopefully we'll have these on the screen so you can get them down. All right. The writings of Zoroastrianism, of Sikhism, of Islam, of Mormonism, all of those writings took place within a very short amount of time, within a real quick few years in essence, for the most part. So what makes the Bible distinct what makes the Bible distinct is that from the time that Moses began to write Genesis 1-1 to the time that John, the Apostle John, finished Revelation 22 was about 1,500 years. No other book of any sort, whether fiction or nonfiction, whether it's religious or non-religious, no other book took 1,500 years to complete. All right. Number two, what makes the Bible distinct? It was written by 40 authors. It was written by 40 authors. So the books of the other religions that I just shared about were all compiled by one person, written by one person, translated by one person. That, that's different for the Bible. What makes the Bible distinct is that there were 40 different individuals involved in the writing of the Bible, of the book, of our sacred scriptures. And, to, and on top of that, all of these 40 guys came from 40 different walks of life. Priests, prophets, kings, military leaders, shepherds, poets, a tent maker, a doctor, a tax collector. Different walks of life. So you have 40 guys writing 66 books over the course of 1,500 years. Number three. What makes the Bible distinct? The Bible was written on at least two different continents. On at least two different continents. 
every other book and every other religion was written in a very limited, finite geographical space, in one area, one spot, in essence. The Bible was written in the Middle East and in Europe, and depending on when Moses would have started writing, possibly Egypt, which would include Africa, a third continent. You get the sense that it's a global book, right? Number four, the Bible was written in all kinds of places. There was not this one divine holy ground where God just, whoever happened to be there, God just dumped all this knowledge and information on this one individual. Folks, like Moses was in the wilderness. Jeremiah was in a dungeon. Paul was in a prison. Luke was traveling. John was in exile. Daniel was on a hill. David was in a palace. That God just revealed wherever God's people were. Number five, the Bible was written in three different languages. So the, the relig- all the other religions, all the other texts of every other religion went in one singular language. The Bible, three languages. So the majority of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. There are a few chapters that were written in Aramaic. In the New Testament, you have a few verses here or there that were written in Aramaic. And then the majority of the New Testament was written in what's called Koine Greek, which is not the same Greek that's spoken today. It's a different Greek. Three different languages. And that all leads me to point number six. The Bible was written without contradiction. The Bible was written without contradiction. So in spite, folks, I want you to marvel at this. In spite of the Bible being written over a 1,500-year course of time by 40 different people on two, maybe three different continents, in three languages, not a word from Genesis to Revelation contradicts. And every once in a while, you hear that individual out in the crowd. Well, I don't believe the Bible because it contradicts itself. Folks, there is no contradiction. Whenever they're asked, so can you point to one, they're mute. See, the reason people say that the Bible contradicts, it's not because the Bible contradicts itself, it's because the Bible contradicts them. Their nature, their character, their life, so they'd rather say it contradicts itself, not knowing better, because it's a mirror. And when we see Scripture, and when Scripture is revealed to us, it's as if we're looking at ourselves in the mirror. We see ourselves as we really are. And for most people, if not all of us, that is an uncomfortable experience to come before an all-holy God and for Him to tell us who we are and where we are and what we need. The Bible does not contradict, again, written over 50 1,500 years, 40 different men, different walks of life, three languages, at least two continents. Not a word of it contradicts. How can you account for that? How can you possibly account for it? I say this all the time. I can't go a week without contradicting myself. My kids catch me all the time. But daddy, yesterday you said this. Folks, the Bible is not the invention of human imagination. It is God's distinct revelation of himself, his truth for our good. 
There is no other way to explain Scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God, inspired by God, given by God. It's a miracle. What we, what we have in, in our Bibles is literally a miracle. As John prayed a while ago, and it was, I was going to throw it in as a point, but for the sake of time, I just didn't. You know how many nations and kings have tried to destroy the Bible from the face of the planet? All of them couldn't do it. Why? Because it is the word of God given to us for our good and for, and for his glory. It's the true revelation of the true God. It is the living word of the living God. That is what the Bible is. Number seven. The Bible has been authenticated. The Bible has been authenticated. What I mean is that it is with, there is no doubt, there is no doubt that what we have today in the Bible is in fact what the original writers actually wrote. So I, I, I found this quote here. Compared with other ancient writings, the Bible has more manuscript evidence to support it than any ten pieces of literature literature combined. Let me say that again. Compared with other ancient writings, the Bible has more manuscript evidence, meaning old copies, old, old ancient copies, more than enough, more manuscript evidence to support it than any 10 pieces of literature combined. So there's a famous book by a very famous guy named Julius Caesar. He wrote this book called The Gaelic Wars. No one doubts that Caesar wrote the book, The Gaelic Wars. And no one doubts that The Gaelic Wars actually portrays true, accurate history. No one questions it. No one questions it. We have 10 copies. We have 10 old copies, old, old, old copies of The Gaelic Wars. The oldest copy of the book that we have is from about 1000 AD, which is a full thousand years after Julius Caesar would have written his book. But no one questions whether he wrote it or not or whether what he depicts is true history. Now check this out. The New Testament that we have, we have 5,366 manuscript copies in part or in whole of just the New Testament by itself. The earliest one going to about 125 A.D. within one generation of the writers. It's amazing. 10 versus 5,366. How about William Shakespeare? He only lived 400 years ago, just 400 years ago. You know that every single one of his 37 plays is in complete dispute. We have so many different versions and copies of it, we have no idea what William Shakespeare actually wrote. All 37, we have no idea what he actually put on paper or parchment or whatever he used. And that's not the case with the Bible. Every scholar, whether Christian or non-Christian, every scholar will say, no, there is no doubt. Whether you believe that the Bible is what it is and says what it says, there is no doubt that what we have today is in fact what the original writers wrote folks that's absolutely amazing and you consider that, that the new testament is written almost 2000 well 2000 years ago in essence right and then the old testament goes back further than that and there is no doubt 
that what we have today is what the original wrote. Last point I'll share. The Bible is full of fulfilled prophecy. The Bible is full of fulfilled prophecy. It is the only, the only book in all of history that has specific prophecy. Specific about individual specific people, specific nations, specific cities, a specific Messiah. No other book, not, a, not the Book of Mormon, not the Quran, no other religious book has the specificity, the detail, and the fulfillment of, of prophecy. It's not like some of them have a few and the Bible has more. Like none of the others have any fulfilled prophecy. And it's particularly, and when, I'm, when I'm talking about prophecy, I don't mean you'll meet a nice guy in a few years. Like, that's so general. Like, well, okay. You know, well, did I meet? I don't know. I'm talking about, like, specific detail that the Bible has. So we don't have time this morning to survey all the prophecy from the Old Testament that we know that has been fulfilled. Let's just go through a few of them that pertain to Jesus. A few of them that we know were given and that have been fulfilled in the life of this promised Messiah. So in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it was foretold hundreds of years in advance that he would be born in Bethlehem. We turn to the New Testament. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 prophesied that a prophet would come immediately before Jesus, like just before Jesus, this forerunner that would prepare the way. You turn to Matthew, the other Gospels, what do you see? John the Baptist immediately right there and Jesus is on his heels he's preparing the way in Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 999 it predicted that the messiah would enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey Matthew chapter 21 Jesus the messiah enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey Zechariah 11:13 Prof, I'm sorry, 113, back up, the 113. Zechariah 113 foretold he would be sold, that Jesus, the Messiah would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. You turn to the New Testament, and that's exactly what Judas got when he betrayed Jesus. Not, there'll be an amount of money, 30 pieces, not of gold, of silver. Do you see the specificity? Like, it's amazing. Zechariah 11.13 says that the 30 pieces of silver would be used to buy a field. Not just any field, the field of a potter, a potter's field. Isaiah 53 verse 7 predicted he would be silent when accused of wrongdoing, when Jesus would be brought before people charging him, and there would be this trial that the Messiah would sit silently, and that's precisely what Jesus did. Isaiah 53.12 said that he would be condemned alongside other criminals. There's a point where he's brought beside this other guy, Barabbas, this other criminal, a murderer. On the cross, he was crucified along with others, other criminals, robbers and thieves. Psalm 22, verse 16 prophesied that his hands and his feet would be pierced. Isn't that precisely what happened on the cross? When the nails were driven through his hands and his feet. And in Psalm twenty-two, fifteen, 15, it actually predicted that the Messiah would die thirsty. And on the cross, Jesus says, I thirst. 
And it's right after that that he gave up his spirit. He said, it's finished, and he gave his life. And all of these were hundreds pushing thousands. There's some that go back over a thousand years with specificity. Now, you could ask, what are the chances of all of that actually taking place, like being fulfilled in the life of of an individual? What are the chances? What are the statistical probabilities that all of that could have possibly just randomly taken place in the life of some individual throughout history? Well, someone did the math. Someone did the math, and what they did, they only took eight. They took what are considered the eight major Messianic Old Testament prophecies of Jesus, and they did the math. What are the chances of eight prophecies of the Old Testament actually being fulfilled in one person? And what they found is that the probability is one to one in ten to the 28th power. That is a one with 28 zeros after it. So let me paint a picture, because, you know, when numbers get so big, it, we, our, our minds kind of draw a blank. This is the equivalent of filling the entire surface, the face of Texas, to a depth of two feet in silver dollars. Marking one of those silver dollars. Blindfolding a blind atheist. They don't have to be blind. You don't have to blindfold them. They don't have to be atheists, but just for fun. You, blind, you blindfold a blind atheist. Ask him to find that one silver dollar on his one and only chance. And in statistical circles, you know what? Statisticians will say that is so far out there, it literally is impossible. It is an impossibility for there to be one, uh, one in 10 to the 28th power chance of someone accomplishing that. Is that not amazing? And that's only eight. There's so many. There are hundreds of prophecies about Jesus. Clearly, folks, clearly, there is something distinct about this book that we hold in our hands, the Bible. This is not human invention. This is not human imagination. This is the word of God, a supernatural work given to us for our good and for his glory. And what is true, before I overstate myself, is that no amount of evidence could ever prove that the Bible is, in fact, God's word. I can't prove it. You can't prove it. No, there's no amount of proof on the planet that can... tell us that definitively. The same way you can't prove that it's not. We're just weighing the evidence. That's all we're doing. And for all that evidence, historical evidence and statistical evidence and fulfilled prophecy and all that, for me personally, in my heart, what convinces me and assures me more than anything else that the Bible is God's distinct revelation to us is how God speaks to me through it. Folks, I I stand before you and I give testimony to the very reality that when I cuddle up to this book and I, I begin to read it, God genuinely speaks to me. It's not audible, but he impresses himself. His spirit impresses his truth into me. And it guides me and it nourishes me 
it changes me. I'm not the same person today I was five years ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago because of God's word. It ministers to me. It sanctifies me. It renews me. It encourages me. It comforts me. It is God's word to me. It is not just me, folks. Any person who has ever spent any time humbly in the presence of God in his word will tell you the exact same thing. This is the word of God. And folks, it is so good. If this is God's word, right, it is so good to literally immerse ourselves in this text, to spend time in it, not not just to read at it, but to actually like sink into it and dive into it. It is so good to be in God's holy scriptures. Psalm 19, verse 10 and 11 says that they're more desired are they, talking about the scriptures, more desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned in keeping them. There is great reward. In reading God's word, there's great reward. We're warned about some things, but there's great reward. It's better than money. It's better than riches. It's better than gold, better than silver, better than fame. It's better than health. It's better. And how sad it is that so many of our Bibles sit on a shelf next to other books as if it's just simply another book. How sad that so many of our Bibles sit on a, on a coffee table or on a nightstand just collecting dust. Folks, if this is truly, truly the Word of God, consume it and be consumed by it. Like if this is genuinely God's distinct revelation of His heart to us, then open up your heart to God's Word. No, may, may all of us in this room, may we leave here having the exact same confession, the same, the same desire in our heart, like from Psalm 119, 105 through 112. Your word, come on, to God, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn, I've sworn and I've confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, and teach me your rules. Give me life according to your word. Accept accept my freewill offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I have, Lord, I have my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. That's the heart of a follower of Jesus. 
The Bible is so full of these treasures. It's, it, it's such a wonderful gift given to us, full of wisdom for our everyday living, and it's full of like inspirational stories. But let me tell you, folks, that what makes the Bible, what makes it so exquisite and so beautiful and so good and such a treasure, it's not the wisdom I get for everyday life. It's who the Bible points me to. You know, the Bible's like a telescope. A telescope, you can look at it, but it's not meant to be looked at. It's meant to be looked through. The Bible's the same way. It's not meant to be looked at. It's not a piece of decoration. It's meant to be looked through, and when we look through the pages of God's Word, we see Him who is beyond this world. We see Jesus. It is because of the Bible that we know that God loves us. It's because of what he's revealed here that we know that he so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It is because of the unchanging, incorruptible word of God, the inspired, God-given revelation that we know that God loves us and that Jesus came to free us from our sin, to free us from despair, that we may live with hope, that our sin may be forgiven, that we may be freed from this body of sin, that we may have a place at his side forever and ever, not by works, but by grace through faith in Jesus alone. It's because of the gospel that is in this book that we can live with hope. And so this morning, we all have a decision to make. What are you going to do with this? What are you going to do with this book? Are you going to believe it? Are you going to trust it? Are you going to live by it? C.H. Spurgeon very famously said, I would recommend you either believe God up to the hilt or else not believe at all. Believe this book of God, every letter of it, or else reject it. There is no logical standing place between the two. Be satisfied with nothing less than a faith that swims in the deeps of divine revelation, a faith that paddles about the edge of the water is poor faith at best. It is little better than a dry land faith and is not good for much. What do you need to do with this? How do you need to respond to what you've heard this morning? Now, if you've never believed in Jesus, if you've never placed your faith in Christ, may that be the starting point. Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. He is clearly the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Came to be our champion and to redeem us. Place your faith in him and just humble yourself to him. Give your life to him. He gave his life for you. He loves you. Place your faith in him and trust him. And then after that, in all of us, that we've made that decision at some point in our lives, what do we do? Devote yourselves to the word of God that is given for our good, our correction, our teaching, our reproof, our admonishment. That this book equips us for every good work. It's how God speaks to us and guides us and leads us.
today. Devote yourself to it. Read it. You go to our website. We have a reading plan. We got reading plans on our website. You don't know where to start. Just go to our website under resources and click there and find a Bible reading plan. Uh, you don't have to do it by yourself. We have small groups, our A-teams. It's what we call them. Folks, it's so much better and easier and more pleasant to be in a Bible study with others. Like, personally, I've always learned more when I'm reading the Bible and studying it with other believers than when I'm trying to do it by myself. God speaks through his people, too. Devote yourself to it. If this is really God's word, now, if you decide it's not, Okay, but if you believe that this is God's word, devote yourself in it and learn to delight in it. And because of that, become distinct yourself. Because there's no way we spend time in God's distinct revelation and not become distinctly different in this world, shining the light of his glory and living for the gospel. So I'm going to ask everyone just to close your eyes where you are, bow your head, and for you to respond to the Lord. And what decision do you need to make this morning? Is this the morning that you've placed your faith in Jesus for the first time? Just pray to him now where you're sitting. Have you been spending sufficient time yourself in God's word? And may God convince, convince you now, convict you now to carve out time each day, every week to open up Scripture. Are you in a Bible study? Lord, Father, I praise you so much for your word. I thank you that you so love us, Lord, that you have given us this text that you have not left us alone, Lord, to try to figure it out or conjure it up, Lord. But no, you have made it very clear. You have revealed yourself and your truth. You've revealed your heart to us, Lord. And it is because of your holy scriptures, Lord, that we can have faith and we can have hope and we can know love in a very real and unique way, Lord. We can know it as it truly is, a gift from you yourself to us. We thank you for every word, every dot that was written, Lord, that it was given for your glory and for our good. It is distinct. There is nothing else like it on this planet. And Lord, it convinces us. It convinces us that what it says is true. That your son gave us life that we may have life. Son died that we may be freed from death. Your son came down from heaven that we may go up to heaven. Lord, if there's anyone in this room that just needs to make that decision now, I pray that, Lord, that they will invite you into their lives, that they will yield their life to you, Lord, and place their faith in Christ. For the rest of us, Lord, may we be people of your word, pillars of truth, and may we be devoted through this incredible gift that you've given to us. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.